0: Some days felt crystal clear, not that I got every call right, but that I was cognitively, I was at a higher level. Mentally, everything was clear. I used the analogy of a snow globe. Some nights it felt like the snow globe had been sitting on the table for 20 minutes and I could see right through. And other nights, it was like the snow globe was shaking the entire time and I was not able to see through with the snow. So the internal question I kept asking myself is, how do I get more nights where the snow globe is settled? But the caveat is, knowing that there's never going to be a perfect night and a night where everything is clear. There's always going to be imperfections. It's a human game refereed by humans. So we know that there's going to be imperfection.
1: Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Tommy Short. Tommy is a former basketball official who spent 10-plus years officiating NCAA men's Division One basketball and working with the U.S. men's Olympic team. In that context, he developed a strong mindset to handle adversity and setbacks. He understands that confidence can be taught, and he describes his personal mission as helping people think better so that they can perform better. Now, Tommy is a really deep student of human behavior and performance under pressure, and I think you're really going to like this episode as we dig into concepts like the mental aspects of high-pressure decision-making, small ways to build culture in a new team, the importance of the first-day effect, and, of course, doing boring things better. Oh, and snow globes. That's honestly an amazing metaphor that we'll keep coming back to during this conversation. Before we get started, reminder, if you haven't already, to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. Now, the book's not for everybody, but if you're an individual or part of a team that performs under pressure, there's a good chance it's for you. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this episode. I hope you enjoy. Tommy, welcome to the podcast, man. I'm psyched to have you on. I think folks are going to learn a ton from you and and be really interested in uh, all the stuff that we're going to dig into. So thanks for joining.
0: Absolutely. I'm fired up. And, and this is something uh, from our first conversation, I have no doubt that listeners will be able to take some stuff away.
1: Phenomenal. So for folks that don't know you, uh, can you start and just give like a, just like a quick overview of who you are and what your deal is?
0: Yeah. So currently I coach executives, sales leaders, and other referees, which I'm sure we'll dive into at some point during our conversation on all things related to performance and specifically mindset. The background to that is I spent the last 15 years as a division one men's basketball referee, also working with our men's Olympic team. And so got to go to some pretty cool places around the country and world with that. And I often joke, as I look back on my officiating career, it it was like getting a PhD in human behavior and human development. Didn't realize it at the time I was on the court, but As I reflect now having been off the court for two years everything I learned on the court 100% translates into what I do today so
1: I mean let's just start right there so tell me more what do you mean a phd in human behavior and performance
0: yeah so you know if you and a lot of people have never probably outside of yelling at officials have never taken the time to maybe understand what goes into that process but for me as I look back how to be decisive Crucial conversations with coaches and players who are in a very emotional environment, but you have to be the calm in the storm to provide that sense of hope. How to be a great teammate. I've got two other partners that are in the game with me that, you know, we're a team and then there's two other teams on the court at the same time. How to develop awareness and confidence to know not only when my performance is not going the way it should, but also when my teammates are not performing to their ability do i have the intestinal fortitude to put my neck out on the line put my ego aside and say hey dan you missed that last call but so what we we need you for the next you know 30 minutes or so and then finally that last piece confidence is an action it's not a feeling so it's something that we can like any other skill we can develop, we can build up and bring that into the performance, regardless of what our performance is, whether it's on the basketball court, the emergency room or a boardroom. So those were really kind of high level, all the things that I developed over the years that now serve me in my role as a coach.
1: So, okay, hopefully if you're listening to this, you've already have a good sense of why we're having this conversation today, because there's so many parallels between what Tommy's describing and what we do uh, in a lot of the high pressure scenarios that we work in, in the emergency mind, right? You have to make really interesting decisions in the setting of emotionally intense, volatile, potentially even environments. And you have to do it while applying this knowledge base of how things should work to the reality of what you're seeing in front of you at a moment to moment basis. Uh, very similar problem sets like that. So can we dive deeper into that? Can you drop me into that world a little bit more and put me in your shoes, which I'm assuming are high tops because that's what you play basketball in, right? Drop me into those shoes in the moment on the court and take me through some of the moment to moment decisions that you're making in there. Like what's a high pressure problem set you might be facing in that environment?
0: Dan, it might be useful if we maybe even take a step back from there and provide a little context on maybe the pre-game routine, if you will, or how we evolved into the performance. And I think that will kind of set us up for that conversation of in the moment. So no different than someone like yourself, who's performing in in the emergency room. As officials, we had to do a really good job of putting everything else aside as we enter the arena. So not necessarily the actual performance, but I'm talking 90 minutes to two hours before. So whether it's, things at home, any myriad of things that could be going on in our world, how do we compartmentalize and set that aside and know that the game and my partners deserve my very best? So having a routine and a process for that, and we can certainly dive into that a little bit more, but let's go into the actual arena, if you will. So it's estimated anywhere during the course of a Division One men's basketball game, you figure anywhere from 140 to 160 possessions, each possession, each official is probably having to make three to five decisions. So I wasn't a math major, but anywhere from 500 decisions a night, probably four to 500 decisions. And I'm I'm talking everything Dan from, is that a travel? Is that not a travel? Is that an illegal screen? Did he get fouled? Did he travel? All of that, right? So having to make those split second decisions. Piggyback on that one further step. I often tell referees now and even individuals that I coach the thing that separates a good official from a great official is how fast you can overcome your little losses. I call them little losses. You might refer to them as something different. So a miscall. Uh, maybe it's a conversation that didn't go well. Maybe your partner had a missed call and you didn't do a good job of having a poker face. So again, a litany of possibilities of those little losses, but how fast you can overcome those. And then what's the system you have in place so that when that happens, You can readily tap into that and you're able to now go forward with that. In your book, something that resonated with me is don't trip over things that are behind you, right? Um, And I'm like, that's officiating, like don't trip over things that are behind you. So my process for RESET and the acronym that I used was REF, R-E-F. So number one, recognize that having the awareness that you are not in an optimal state of performance, whether that's a missed call, again, the things I listed. So that's the R. Two would be the engage. So engaging your physiological body with a breath. And all of this could happen within three to five seconds and you would never know I'm doing it, uh, but this was my process. So engaging in that breath. And then F, focus, or you could even say refocus. And for me, that was two parts. Number one, picking a place on the court. So for me, it was always the shot clock because that was doing two things. Number one, it's raising my head to look up. So it's changing my state physically the physiological state. So that's going to change everything else. And then number two, having a statement of so what, now what? That was my process, very quick, five seconds that I would constantly do throughout the game, among other things. But that would help me reset within the context of the game that's
1: awesome all right so there's a bunch of stuff in there so first off that's really similar to a structure that we use a lot which is this version of labeling taking a breath and reorienting your team right so we we label something as suboptimal because it allows us to have you know sort of the right amount of tension to say hey this is a problem but we're not getting swept by this problem we acknowledge it but we're not swept by it you take a breath to change your physiology like you're describing, and then you sort of refocus yourself and your team on your next priority. So it's a, it's a really common structure. And it's I like that acronym for it that makes a lot of sense. Also, I guess I have to point out that like don't trip over what's behind you. I can't claim credit for that. That's actually Seneca that said that as somebody who's a lot wiser than yeah. I am, but still something that I, I love and use quite a bit. So we're still a little bit on like defining the scope of the problem set that we're working with here. So, okay, so you're coming into an arena and you know that you're about to have to make somewhere on the order of four to 500 high quality decisions under pressure over the next period of time. You don't know when Mm -hmm. these are going to come, although you have some sense of the pacing of them and you really don't know exactly what types of scenarios you're walking into. Now you have some background, obviously you understand the game very well and you understand your whole database of uh, similar decisions you've made in the past, what we might call in the medical world, your fund of knowledge, right? So that's the combination of your theory and your previous attempts at practicing that theory under pressure, all of which, are sort of swirling around in your head as you do this. And you know that the decisions you're going to face that night, those 500 decisions, they might or might not be similar or different to what you've seen before. They probably exist within some scope, but you're obviously maybe going to run into scenarios that you've never actually seen or encountered before in real life. What's that moment like in the first couple minutes when you're just starting things out and you're getting that first one or two decisions under your belt for that particular game? We
0: had the benefit, maybe like you and your colleagues, but maybe not. A college basketball game broken up into with media timeouts in four-minute segments. So you have two 20-minute halves. So you're going to have a media timeout at the 16, 12, 8, and 4, and then obviously halftime. So my mindset was to chunk everything into get through the first four, right? Like I don't need to worry about even the second possession. Let's start with a, a great jump ball and go right into that possession knowing to your point, there's a litany of things that could possibly happen. I'm, I feel confident that I'm prepared for all of them. But at the same time, there's always this one-off chance that something could happen that might not, but probably not realistic. Two is learning. And I didn't really tap into all these things. For the longest time, I thought a really good official was just someone that got calls right. But as I matured and got older, that's table stakes. Like you, you have to know the rules. You have to know the mechanics of where to be. And you, you have to know how to communicate. That was what I thought. Well, hey, that's a great official. As I matured, I realized it was the things I mentioned at the beginning of this episode with decision-making and performance and having the tough conversations and the awareness and confidence. So then telling myself, a big change for me too, Dan, was listening less to myself and talking more during the game and using that self-talk and the self-image that I created throughout the process to know that when a tough call was going to happen, I would be ready. And to also know that every time I blow my whistle, at least half of the people in the arena are going to be upset. So knowing that going in, there's always going to be people that are upset. So why am I surprised? That's one of my favorite questions to ask other officials. And it applies to a lot, but why are you surprised? Like there's very few things you should be surprised about. And then the last thing I there is when I made the switch internally to going from, I want everyone to like me to, I want everyone to respect me. I had plenty of friends. I wasn't there to, to make friends and it wasn't a, an arrogance, but a confidence in knowing that I had done the work beforehand. So when I stepped in the arena, literally and figuratively, I was as prepared as any other person. And I was ready to play free and not be worried about, oh, what happens if I miss a call? Well, what happens if I don't? But those were the sorts of conversations and things that I had to ready myself as I stepped in the arena.
1: I'm hearing threads of mental rehearsal and performance ahead of time. And not just in the sense of I'm going to rehearse what it's going to sound like when I do X, which is obviously very important, but also I'm going to, I don't know, for lack of a better word, I'm going to boil my experience And from it, I'm going to take out the derivative of how I think things are going to go and how I want them to go. That Mm -hmm. cycle of what we use in the emergency mind project of prepare, perform, recover, and evolve, right? You're running that cycle. Mm -hmm. You're doing that loop and you're taking from it knowledge that you're going to use for your future games. But I want to focus for a second on something you said, which is that your vision of what it means to be a good ref changed and evolved over time. Can we focus more on that? Because you said at the beginning, you thought that a ref is somebody that just makes the calls right. What was it that changed your mind? And and if you had to answer that now, what is it that makes a good ref now?
0: The thing that changed my mind was hearing a sports psychologist speak several years ago. And he was talking to a group of officials, but was relaying his experience working with professional athletes. And I can, Dan, I can remember what I was wearing. I can remember what time of day it was. I mean, it was literally one of those aha moments where I was like, stopped and I'm like, all of this applies to officiating, but even like all this applies to life. But why don't more people do this or tap into that? And so that started me down a rabbit hole, if you will, of of diving into the mind and the mental aspects of it. So that was the first part. The second part of, of the transition, it really got to the point, Dan, where some days, and I don't know if you ever experienced this in the emergency room, some days felt crystal clear. Not that I got every call right, but that I was, cognitively, I was at a higher level. Mentally, everything was clear. I used the analogy of a snow globe. Some nights it felt like the snow globe had been sitting on the table for 20 minutes and I could see right through. In other nights, it was like the snow globe was shaking the entire time and I was not able to see through with the snow. So the internal question I kept asking myself is how do I get more nights where the snow globe is settled? But the caveat is knowing that there's never going to be a perfect night and a night where everything is clear. There's always going to be imperfections. It's a human game refereed by humans. So we know that there's going to be imperfection. And then the last thing I'll add is, and I, I know you're a fan of, <clears throat> excuse me, meditations. But there was a quote in there that really resonated with me. And and it's the part, I can't recall what book specifically, but it, it's like, this is unfortunate that it's happened to me. And Marcus really says, no, it's fortunate that it happened to me because others will be bothered by this, but I will not be bothered. And so that was the mantra that I took into every game is like, I know things are going to go wrong, but I'm prepared and I've done the work before to fully show up and give the best version of myself and not only myself, but also build the awareness to help my partners step step up into the arena and bring their best selves forward.
1: Yeah. I really like that. And I I love the snow globe metaphor. I think clarity of mind and purpose and recognizing that settling the snow globe is a skill, not an accident, right? Like sometimes Mm -hmm. I think, uh, especially at the beginning, it, it sort of feels like, oh, some days my mind shows up clear and some days my mind shows up like a snowstorm, but how do I- do that. And at the beginning, it sort of feels like it's an external thing imposed on you, right? Like you're lucky if you show up with a clear snow globe of a head, if that's the right way to say that. And I think that as I've trained more and more, I realized, well, okay, I can't control all of that. I don't control all of my thoughts, but I certainly can do a lot of things that increase the probability of a clear snow globe Dan showing up to work that day as opposed to a snowstorm Dan showing up. To say the obverse of that, I am sure that we all know things we can do that will screw us up for our shift the next day. Things that we can think and do and act like that will make it harder for us to make high quality decisions under pressure. So if that's true, if we can make it worse, right, then we certainly can make it better. And I think understanding how much of that is under our control is a really crucial piece. I think the more I Mm -hmm. understand that, the more I understand that my ability to show up ready to act is under my control, the more curious and excited I get to work on myself and to improve the systems I have in place at myself, the team, and the structural level to make that the most likely outcome, to make that calm the most likely outcome, right? To default to being calm as opposed to having it be a rare event that happens. And I think there's so much meat in that about like what we can do to make that the path of highest likelihood for everybody on our team. One of the things that you said about that that's really a similarity and something that's always struck me is starting off by saying, I know I've put the work in. I know what I'm doing. I am, you know, the best person to fill this role today for what we have. That's a technique mm-hmm. that I used a lot too. I think it's interesting to ask the question of like, how does that technique work if you're just starting out? Right. If you're maybe younger in the game, you don't have a ton of reps in there, you're doing something you haven't actually done a ton of training for, but still you're the one that needs to step up and do it. And maybe I'll ask that question is what did that feel like for you at the beginning of your career?
0: There was a lot of ego beginning of my career. So that or call it the first two-thirds or three-fourths of my career on the court thinking that, well, two parts. One, I wasn't getting the opportunities I thought I should deserve and thinking I had to do more in the game than was required of me. What do I mean by that? I was similar to an emergency room is not going to have, correct me if I'm wrong, someone, a doctor in charge that's still a resident, right? There's there's layers in their senior doctor. Yeah, the,
1: the attending still, is the doc in charge. A, as a,
0: mm-hmm. So as a younger official, call it that I would have been, the parallel would have been like a med student or a resident, having the awareness to know I was not going to be put in a situation by my supervisor that he didn't think I could handle. So having that confidence almost baked into me for lack of a better term to know that I don't have to be an all-star tonight. I don't have to go out and get all these miraculous calls. The better I do in my primary area of focus, that's going to help the greater good. And on the flip side, we use this in officiating too is and and how it helped me as I evolved when things didn't go right, either not so much as a younger official, but as I got older you know, what do I control right now? And shrinking the court, if you will, to a three-foot circle. Now, that was a literal term. But the point was, if you see something outside of your three-foot circle, don't blow the whistle right? So it really brings your focus closer to home. And I don't have to start worrying about what's Dan doing over here on the other side of the court or What's Bob doing? Like I I need to focus on what's right in front of me. And so many times as a younger official, I thought, well, I need to go help Dan. Well, no, no, no. Dan is a senior official. He can take care of his own. I need to really get good at my own area. I don't need to save this game in the first half by making a call halfway across the court. So by being able to ask myself as I got older, what do I control right now? right? And my three foot circle was the area that I control the most. And so if it's not in that three foot circle, don't worry about it. But too many times I think as performers, specifically from the officiating world, and I'll say from my coaching now, too often executives or referees think I need to go outside of my world to do A, B, and C. Well, make sure you own your three foot circle. And when, when that's nice and tight, then extend, but don't extend first and then come back in. I was trying to stay kind of 30,000 foot view with the officiating lingo, but I'm sure that can relate in your world somehow.
1: Okay. So what I'm hearing from that is that, especially at the beginning, when you're just coming up and you're learning to do some of this high pressure decision work, and you're learning to map your knowledge onto reality, one of the most important things you can do is to focus on where you have the most control, focus on your small domain and not try to control every variable all at once, right? Do your part and do it well. Am I reading that
0: right?
1: 100%. The parallel for us in there is this idea of apply graduated pressure and the concept of the wedge, right? That you're going to practice on the low wedge parts before you move into the high wedge environments. Really, that's a story of mastering your small piece before you go and try to control everything else. This is a really timely, I guess, time to have this conversation because we're right about now in the world uh, is where the residents sort of all Bump up a level, right? So the emergency doctors in, in training that I'm working with are all about to sort of move up in July and take over the next set of responsibilities. So right now, they're just at that point of the wedge where most of us feel like we've mastered one part of our skill set. And now we're about to be exposed to a whole new set of challenges, a real bump up kind of moment. And it's a good reminder to always, no matter where you are in that wedge, to focus on where you have the most control and make sure your part's getting done the way it needs to get done. So, how conscious of That were you at the beginning versus how much of that is hindsight? You know, when you put yourself in sort of like younger Tommy's days and you're thinking about how those games went, were you conscious of that in that moment? Like, were you telling yourself, okay, three foot bubble, three foot bubble? Or was that more of something looking backwards that you're able to say, wow, this really went well? When I did this, my snow globe was calm. And when I didn't, everything was chaos.
0: I was not conscious of it the first, call it two thirds of my career. Again, I thought everything was (laughs) getting calls right. And it was almost like do minimal work required. And then it's like, I did my job, you know, move on to the Mm. next game. Again, I think internal work, working with coaches, it allowed me to go inside and and realize two things. One, having a daily reflection, even within the game. So wanting to understand what went well, what can I do better? And then how am I going to do that better? And then the second part of that was being very deliberate in my practice. And what I mean by that, on any given week, I would work three, four or five games, usually four to five. Um, So for that week, I would take one thing. All I would really focus on is travels. Like I could miss a guy getting elbowed in the face, but I was so locked in on, I want to get really good at travel. And then take an objective look back. We would always, we had a phrase, beat the tape, like the tape never lies. So when you go back and watch your tape and I wanted to get really good at travels and at the end of that week, if I felt I was doing a better job and I had that mastery is another discussion. If I felt like I had evolved from Tommy the ref on Sunday versus Tommy the ref on Saturday night, okay, I've checked that off. Not that I was completely done with that, but I felt confident enough I could work on the next little intricate thing. But for a while, I was working on too many things. I was, I want to get better at calling fouls down the lane. I want to get better at, my positioning at trail. I want to, it's like your mind, we can't, we're not able to multitask. And so I was, I was scattered all over the place. But when I got really good at having a reflection for each game and being honest and objective with myself, as if I was somebody in the stands, evaluating three officials, there was taking my name out of it. And then the being deliberate with what I want to get better at one thing at a time, one per week, and then have an honest evaluation. Those were the two parts that kind of changed the trajectory of my
1: career. And Were you generating those ideas for yourself? Were you saying, okay, Tommy, this is what I want to do today? Or is there a list that you're working off of? Or were you being mentored by a more senior official to say that? Right, Because I think we run into this problem sometimes where when we think about what we want to get better at, often it's some of the most visible pieces. Right, For us, it's the critical care, the critical resuscitation, uh, getting an airway secured, the things that are big and exciting. And it's a lot harder to identify and focus on the small, crucially important, but sometimes invisible steps, like physically my position in the room when I approach a patient in a resuscitation, my eye contact during communication in critical cases, or the speed with which I move successfully from plan A to plan B. These things aren't necessarily as Exciting or as easy to focus on. And so often when I was younger, when I was coming up, I wouldn't care about those things as much as I would care about the really fun parts. I was very lucky to have an incredible set of mentors that were able to guide me and say, you know, Dan, like stop paying attention to this for a minute. What you really need to pay attention to is this thing that doesn't look important or hidden over here. You need to nail that. And when you nail that, then you can go back and you'll actually have a higher success rate doing the, the quote fun stuff. But that's hard because that requires. Not only mentors, but mentors that understand psychology and human behavior and sort of guiding you through all of that. But what was that like for you?
0: I love that question. Your listeners won't be able to see, but I'm, I'm showing Dan a saying that I came up with on my wristband, do boring better. And what I mean by that is do all the boring things in your profession, in your career, that from the outside, either your colleagues who aren't doing it or someone else would be like, Dan, why are you spending time on that? When you get those kind of remarks, that's, that's an indicator for me that I know I'm in the right place. So that's the first part. And this is a, a motto. I've got a personal philosophy and then do boring better is a close second to my personal philosophy and I carry it every day. So I know when I'm doing the boring things better, watching film. When I watched film, Dan, I watched it two ways. The first time, all I was looking at was uh, body language nonverbal communication. I didn't care. I wasn't watching for calls. I wasn't watching for anything. I wanted to see how was I responding when my partners made a call? How was I interacting with coaches? Did I have my hands crossed? Was I in a confrontational stance? Um, where was my head? Was my head up? Did I look like I was, you know, perception is a lot in officiating. Where, how was I carrying my body? After I made a call, whether it was right or wrong, how did I carry myself from the place I would made the call to uh, to the table? How did I stand during media timeouts? There's two and a half minutes. I'm standing in front of 15,000 people who are just screaming by myself. What am I doing for two and a half minutes? So the first time I watched only for the nonverbal and body language. And then the second time I would go through and look at calls. And then the third part you asked about mentors and, and how did I come up with that? Part of that was them, but a mentor shared something with me that stuck with me very much. I used to, the younger Tommy official let's say you were a senior official and we were working a game together, or maybe even you are a mentor of mine, I would say, hey, Dan, can you give me some feedback after the game of what you think I could get better at? Well, if you really unpack that, that's a lazy question. It's not specific. And you're asking the other person to do too much. Where I changed it was, hey, Dan, I'm working on my positioning at lead today. Can you maybe look for that within the game? And if you notice anything, Feel free to point it out during the game or when we're in the locker room after the game. No ego. I'm open to feedback. So when I got specific with the questions I was asking for feedback, I noticed that the responses I were getting were a lot better to help me move forward. So those were really the things that were pointed out. But then I also wanted to get really specific with the questions because then I would get a more specific answer, which would in turn help me do all of the other kind of non-visible things better as an official.
1: Tommy, I I love do boring better so much, man. I just, I love that. That speaks to me at like an incredibly deep level. And that's like something that I'm really passionate about in the emergency mind project in general, right? Which is that it's the small things that you do correctly that allow you to do the big things well, right? And it's the small Mm -hmm. things that are hidden that allow you to do the big things well. So I'm, I don't know, famous or notorious or whatever you want to call it for making sure that the oxygen tank under the bed is full before we do a complex resuscitation. On the surface, that seems like maybe like not the most important thing. Like You have to get your mind right. You have to get your team right. You have to get everything ready to go. And it's sort of hidden because it's literally physically hidden under the bed. And unless you go around and look for it, you're not going to find it. But I obsess about this because it is the boring thing that you do correctly that makes sure that 10, 15 minutes from now, when you've quasi-stabilized the patient and you're transporting them from point A to point B, you're not going to run out of oxygen in that moment. Unfortunately, this comes from experience of having run out of oxygen in that moment. right? But even if it's not the experience of it, it's the discipline of thinking to yourself, okay, what are the small things that stand in the way of this? And this really drifts us in some sense into behavioral economics and human factors work because there's a boundary line here between the internal drive at a personal level of what it takes to want to master all of the details of your craft. And that's really a story like what you're describing about asking intelligent questions and asking them well. And then there's features of the team and the structure that guide us into default actions on purpose, right? that, that are, are doing the equivalent of nudging us into making the small things and the boring things work well. And I think that this is where there's so much available space for work about how do you blend these these multiple concepts together. But I love the idea of what you're describing back to the personal level for a moment, which is really sort of like mentoring from below almost, right? Like you as a learner and as a person working to master their craft are asking specific questions of the mentors above you, and you're using that to sort of help frame things along that line. A similar question that I really loved asking when I was a resident and still love asking now is... What are the small things that you do differently now that I don't even see, right? Some version of do boring better, right? Like what are the boring things that you do now that you didn't do when you were my age, so to speak, that I won't even notice unless you point them out to me? Because mm-hmm. to me that that gets at some of the really depth of that question because probably those boring things aren't necessarily obvious and I might not even know to look for them until I do it. And what you'll find in there are These incredible, just absolute field of gems of things like actually, it's the posture of your right foot that matters when you do X, Y, Z, but you'll never know it unless you actually think about it. And it also allows you a chance to tell stories about why things break and why things work under pressure. There's a ton of work Mm -hmm. by Gary Klein when you think about the book Sources of Power or some of his other work about his incredible work on decision making that really gets to the focus of the power of story to transmit these small ideas. And the way that we are able to do it is by telling each other stories. Hey, you know, this one time I made a call that looked like this, or, hey, this one time I resuscitated a patient and this is what happened. But what's so important is the invitation to tell that story and asking those questions of the mentors above us is a great way to open up that space and be able to really explore like that.
0: Dan, one thing I'd I'd like to touch on, I had a mentor and this completely changed, you know, you're familiar with after action review, very common in the um, Navy SEALs community and The thing that helped me as a younger official, when a senior official, and I'm using air quotes, would come into the locker room and start out that debrief with a play that he missed. And it might not on the surface seem very powerful, but when someone who is more senior in experience or age or whatever is vulnerable enough to start that conversation off with, tell me about that play you missed. He's starting out with, Hey, I missed this. When a mentor comes from that place of vulnerability, it completely changes the dynamics of the room. And I took personal pride in whether it was before the game or at halftime, specifically after I would always start with something I messed up on always, because I wanted to create this environment because we get there 90 minutes before, like in your world, you might have two minutes before you have a, trauma coming into your world. We're there in 90 minutes. So there's a lot for us to talk about and chew on and everything. But I made a point because I had been in locker rooms before the game where nobody says anything. And it creates this tension and just uneasiness. And it's like, I've got to go on the battlefield, so to speak, for two hours with you. And like this is the environment you want to create. And I knew as I got older and I took the head referee, the crew chief responsibilities, from the minute we got in the locker room, whether I liked you or not, didn't matter. I was going to put that aside. I was going to be intentional about creating an environment that showed you tonight we're equal. I might have more experience, but when we get on the court, like I'm depending on you to do your job. We're not going to succeed if two out of three of us do our job. So I wanted to create this environment of sharing, hey, here are some things I messed up on last game, last night, last week, or last year. And I want to share them with you because I I don't want you to mess up. And then after the game, I'm going to start off with, Gosh, I really kicked that play and it sets you up in a bad position. And I just I noticed that the, the environment and the, the sharing and the vulnerability completely changed the dynamic. So that's one of those things of do boring better that would often get overlooked, but was so crucial to not only the dynamic of the team performance, but also my individual performance as well.
1: Love that, man. We're talking a lot about the role of vulnerability in building a psychologically safe culture, right? The role of the leader being vulnerable as starting the tone for a psychologically safe culture that allows us to really grow and share freely and openly back and forth about that. So I'm going to ask this question out out of ignorance here, but when you're talking about a three ref team, how often are you three working together? Is it every game over the course of a season you'll work together or do you rotate in various combinations for every game?
0: Yeah, great question. So I would say over the course of a season, I might only work with someone on the high end six or seven times, and there's oftentimes my best friends I would see at the beginning of the season for our preseason meetings. And I might not work a game with them all year, obviously talking and, you know, crossing paths at airports across the country, but it's not like the NFL where you have the same crew night in and night out. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of interpersonal dynamics of you getting your schedule and seeing who your two partners are and knowing we don't see eye to eye philosophically. We don't communicate the same way, but I've got to put that aside for the two hours we're on the court. Um, And then there's some games where it's like, You see Dan on your schedule and it's like, hey, when are you getting into the city and uh, let's share a car and let's stay at the same place. So no different than in other work environments where I'm sure if you're on shift with some people, maybe, maybe not, you're like, "Eh, I'll have to grin and bear it. But there's others who you genuinely want to be around. So no different than other professions.
1: Actually, that's a really interesting thing to dive into for a minute because there are a wide variety of differences there across high-performing teams, right? Some teams, you you train with your team, you come up with your team, you perform with your team, and then you debrief and go home with your team. Some of the um, special forces universes work this way, right? Like you train with your team mm-hmm. for every piece of that mission. In other cases, the team is more of what you'd call a swarm team, where people come together from different backgrounds. They arrive on the X together, they do a job, and then they disperse back to their own environments. And the way that you communicate, the way that you interact with each other, the culture that you build, whether it's flash culture or continuing culture, and the decisions that you make and the ability of your team to perform your mission are pretty wildly different among the edges of those spectrums. right? So certain times in the emergency department, we will be more like the coherent team. right? We'll start our shift together. We'll have our four or five doctors, our four or five nurses, and we're able to come on at the same time and be like, hey, all right, here's what we're doing. Let's go for it. Other times you're mixing with folks that maybe you've never worked with before. You have a, a different group coming in and you have to sort of build that culture from that flashpoint every time. So there actually is a lot of difference in there. And, and I'm really curious if we can spend maybe one or two more minutes talking about this point about how you would start building that culture. You already mentioned that you'd start by saying, hey, here's a thing I'm working on today, which I think is a great way to do that. How else would you build that culture from the beginning? And how would you reinforce that culture over the course of the game?
0: There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, there, there were some officials, you could tell they, they they had the talent, but even from conversations like they weren't watching film, they weren't active in trying to evolve as a performer they just kind of had the talent they were good at you know getting the calls right but maybe they weren't a great communicator maybe they weren't a a great partner there's some officials who the public would never know that are really good officials from a basketball standpoint of getting the calls right but as a partner they're terrible like they don't communicate they're they'll kind of leave you on an island so to speak they might even like hang you out to dry with a coach As a younger official, again, back to the conscious, I wasn't aware of those little things. As a senior official, I would go out of my way during a timeout to engage with the other officials to make them feel that I cared because I genuinely did. Like Just from my upbringing, I'm inclusive. I want people to be on the same page. So I would go out of my way and build up their confidence in those little micro moments where they might be having an internal conversation of, Oh my gosh, like, what is Tommy thinking about me? What is this coach thinking about me? And my intuition, especially as I've worked on that over the, I, I feel like I've I've got a sense of what someone's thinking in the moment of performance. So I would go over there and say, Hey, look, Dan, I know you missed that call, but like, you're here for a reason. Like I need you right now and, and you're here for a reason and you can do this job. Like let's make this the last eight minutes. Great. So using those micro moments to go and, and encourage And then asking questions uh, in the locker room of like, maybe I even knew how to do something, but again, to encourage and build up the other person. Hey, Dan, how'd you been handling this situation? Or if we're presented with X, like, what are your thoughts on that? As opposed to getting in so-called the the firefight and then trying to figure out, well, how's this person going to handle it? I felt confident that I knew how I was going to handle it, but I want to throw that out there to less experienced officials. Like, hey, how would you handle this situation? Just to get their mind thinking about some different ways to go about it.
1: I mean, one of the themes of this conversation that I love so much is this devotion to continual improvement and mm-hmm. this desire to constantly be a better version of who you are and to continue mastering your craft as you grow. And I'm seeing that as you're saying this reflected not only in your own actions, as you think about watching tape and the way you watch tape and the way you make the calls, but also now in the culture that you're building around you in the team, right? Because you're you're pushing those questions towards folks. And in doing so, you're normalizing the fact that everybody's learning and everybody's growing. And I think that's one of the most powerful things we can do as a leader is to normalize imperfection and growth, as opposed to say, hey, I know everything and you know nothing, right? You suck, suck less, right? That's like the opposite of what we want to build, right? What we want to build is this culture where everybody's growing and striving together to be better versions of ourselves as individuals and as a team. And I love hearing Mm -hmm. that reflected in what you're doing as you build that culture
0: something, Dan, that that comes to mind and developed this over the last couple of years and the other piece of, of my core philosophy, but treat each day like it's the first day. So for me, think back, right? Like your first day at the hospital, your first day on a day, any first day experience, like we show up different, right? Like we have this enthusiasm about ourselves. There's probably not a lot of expectations from others. So we don't put this Hopefully undue pressure on ourselves. But for me to even dive into the weeds, each is capitalized for a specific reason because those are my four core values. And I know that if I tap into every day to the improvement and learning piece that I'm going to bring the best version of myself, which hopefully will kind of radiate energy. So for me, it's, it's empathy, authenticity, childlike curiosity and humility. So I know that if I tap into empathy and understand everyone's got going on authenticity, I'm going to, I'm going to be myself. Not everyone's going to like me and that's okay, but I'm going to be authentic. I'd rather someone not like me for who I am than like me because I'm changing my identity within the scope of it. The childlike curiosity, it probably comes from myself as a young kid, but asking questions, always asking questions, right? Give you kudos to chapter in your book, question your questions. Like that was one of my favorite chapters of the book of like always asking better questions and and how can we ask better questions? Uh, Because that's going to expose something that we didn't even know was there. And then the humility to know that. We don't have the answers, and that's okay. That's not the point of this. It's to learn and to know that we don't have this all figured out. So, for me, creating that personal philosophy and tapping into those allows me to continuously learn and become a better version so that I can help others, whether they're clients I'm coaching or someone that I interact with at the coffee shop.
1: Love it, man. Tommy, this has been amazing. And as we draw towards a close here, which I regret because I'm enjoying this conversation so much, I wanna offer you a space to issue a challenge to everybody listening to this. Is there anything that you want them to try differently tomorrow, whether they're on shift or off shift that day, anything you want them to experiment with and and something you want them to come away from this conversation with from that regard?
0: I've really been over in personal journaling and just where I am in my journey right now. I'm being very deliberate in how I show up, how I am being in the moment. Oftentimes that is, again, one of the boring things. People overlook how they show up how that can change a room, how that can change a conversation. So not what are you doing, not what you want to achieve, but how are you being, how are you acting in the moment from nonverbal and verbal? What language? So my challenge to people is how you show up matters in whatever room you're in, how you show up matters, because it might be one thing that you say or how you carry yourself in that situation that someone else says, okay, if he can act like that under pressure, why can't I? Or if he can carry himself like that, it, when things are going haywire, why not me? My challenge to people is be aware in how you show up and how your being is there, because we're never going to consistently outperform our self-image. So changing that and how you show up and how you talk to yourself, those are the things that make a difference. And that's my challenge to your listeners.
1: Wow. Just dropping a gem like that on the way out. We're never going to consistently outperform <laughs> our self-image. Wow. I, I love that, man. That's such a good, That's great that deserves some thought. Tommy, thank you so much for joining the podcast, man. I learned a ton from this. It is absolutely an honor to have you on board. I appreciate you having me, Dan. Thank you. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.